Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer, Fred, Fred Hoffman. Many California farmers are having a great harvest season, but where's it all going to go? Trade woes, tariff disputes, they're making for a very uncertain autumn. We update the latest on the tariff battles, and we take a look at the possible ramifications of a farm bill that just might expire September 30th unless Congress takes quick action. We have a report on the latest advances in drone technology for the farm, and we offer up a primer on cover cropping. We have all that, the latest in crop reports, and much more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. From apples to milk and from almonds to wheat, ongoing tariff and trade disputes could take a multi-billion dollar bite out of California and the nation's agricultural revenue. Though the dollar impact of the tariffs are estimates, agricultural exports are suffering losses that will top $4 billion this year and are projected to increase next year. The hit to apples sold in Mexico, India, and China is estimated at $129 million for the coming year. The Capital Press reports that dairy losses may be about $115 million this year and $415 million in 2019, but when oversupply to the domestic market and downward pressure on prices are considered, the cost to dairy producers and processors will be closer to $1.9 billion this year and $3 billion next year. Other commodities that will sustain big hits this year include almonds at $1.6 billion and pork at $1.1 billion. Farmers are harvesting a 2018 crop that's expected to offer record corn and soybean yields. Megan Nelson, an economic analyst at the American Farm Bureau Federation, says the weekly USDA crop progress report shows farmers are quickly harvesting a bumper crop. 16% of the U.S. corn crop and 14% of the U.S. soybean crop has been harvested so far. The report also showed that crop conditions have improved slightly, with 69% of the U.S. corn crop in good to excellent condition and 68% of the U.S. soybean crop in good to excellent condition. Nelson says the early harvest numbers are exceeding the average pace and farmers expect to see good yields. For the most part, the harvest rate is in line with what analysts' expectations were and continues to outpace previous years and the five-year average at this time. As we saw in the latest USDA report, we're going to see record corn and soybean yields this year and relatively favorable growing conditions have led us to maybe see even higher yields than being predicted right now. Nelson says farmers should watch the weekly crop progress reports closely for clues to potential issues. We're going to continue to see rapid harvest pace, but this could also potentially lead us into some storage availability issues and a wider basis as harvest progresses. So it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Michael Clements, Washington. Yes, there is a big harvest, but who's going to buy it? As the trade dispute between China and the U.S. ratcheted up last week, more California agricultural products face new retaliatory tariffs. China implemented a new round of tariffs last week on U.S. goods, including a wide range of food and agricultural products. Marketers of California products such as wine, cotton, flowers, and timber say they expect the tariffs to further complicate their sales efforts. They hope the dispute will end as soon as possible. And then there are worries for grape growers. They say tariffs from China have rattled their markets. Exports of California table grapes to China dropped 40% once it began imposing extra tariffs this spring. Shippers have been seeking new markets for the grapes. Typically, more than one-third of the state's production is exported. The California table grape harvest has reached mid-season, with marketers expecting a slightly larger crop than last year's. 
Can some people forecast the future? Well, back in January, the Agriculture Department's Undersecretary for Trade, Ted McKinney, told an audience as far as some kind of trade agreement with Japan is concerned. I believe it is not a matter of if but when something will come. And sure enough, something came this week after meeting with Japanese Prime Minister Abe, President Trump, telling reporters in New York. We're starting trade talks with Japan. And I'm sure we'll make a very good deal. And after an ag trade trip to Japan back in June, Ted McKinney said Japanese buyers told him they already love U.S. ag products. Why? First, the quality. It's a good quality product. Hand in glove with that is the trust in the regulatory system that says it's safe. And then, you know, usually the U.S. with its size and scope has an opportunity to deliver volumes of product. So U.S. ag products are an easy sell in Japan. It's already our fourth largest market for U.S. ag products. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Barring a dramatic breakthrough, farm state lawmakers will probably miss their target of enacting the 2018 Farm Bill, that according to successful farming. House Republicans' demands for stricter work requirements for food stamp recipients is the major obstacle for the conferees, but there are differences across all sections of that $87 billion a year legislation. There would be little immediate impact if the 2014 farm law expires September 30th without a successor in place. Lawmakers have passed short-term extensions, sometimes repeatedly in the past, while completing negotiations, or simply allowed a lapse of a few days. But at some point, the unwanted farm bill will be invoked. That's a reversion to the permanent 1949 Agricultural Act, which would boost farm subsidy rates to unaffordable rates, reintroduce planting controls for some crops, as well as eliminate support for soybeans. When a farm law expires, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as SNAP, as well as crop insurance, remains in effect, and most farm subsidy programs would run for months. But land stewardship programs would be in limbo for the most part. Trade promotion and international food aid programs would also halt. With what could be a long trade dispute with China, many are asking whether the U.S. might reconsider its pullout from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The Agriculture Department's Undersecretary for Trade, Ted McKinney, was asked about that this week at a trade symposium in Washington. I think we have yet to see where we go on TPP. You know, I think the president teased us a couple of times on that. If they offered us a deal that I can't refuse on behalf of the United States, I would do it. But McKinney told his audience... We haven't heard anything that would revisit that. But we'll see. And maybe some announcement will come out of the, the meetings in New York. I understand the president is meeting with Prime Minister Abe of Japan and others, no doubt. And so maybe we'll see some announcements that clarify that kind of thing. McKinney said the president, of course, has expressed his preference for bilateral agreements, not those involving 11 other countries, such as the TPP. McKinney says the decision's not his, though, and so... We'll just keep working with whatever hand or whatever direction we're dealt with. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Brad Rippey is a USDA meteorologist. He talks about the unusual heat wave here on the West Coast, raising the risk of wildfire. We are expecting a late season heat wave to continue across the western United States. Unusually high temperatures. Uh, at times when we get uh, breezy conditions, low humidity levels that could contribute to additional threat for wildfire development or expansion. We've still got several dozen fires in various stages of containment active in the West. So uh, needless to say, we're not done with the wildfire season, especially true in California. You might remember last year we had horrific wildfire outbreaks in California in October and December, and we actually have sort of a 
peak season that does develop in the fall with the uh, onset of high pressure systems coming down into the west creating the Santa Ana wind conditions across Southern California. So we are not done with the wildfire season and has been very active in the west and we do have some potential for additional wildfire activity uh, this week and beyond. Taking a look at the extended forecast for our area here in Northern California, there is a slight chance of showers Monday and Tuesday. One thing is for certain, though, it looks like temperatures will be dropping to below normal. Here's this week's California crop report. Sunflower, beans, and rice continue to be harvested in Sutter County. In the Sacramento Valley, rice harvest began and harvest continues for safflower. In Tulare County, the cotton is blooming, bulls were set, alfalfa was being cut and baled, and corn and sorghum were harvested for silage. Table grape harvest is ongoing. Raisin grapes were harvested and laid out in the sun for drying. Wine grapes continue to be harvested. Peaches, nectarines, pears, plums, and pomegranates were harvested. Stone fruit orchards were sprayed and fertilized. Some old stone fruit orchards were torn out for replacement with new trees. Persimmon and olives were maturing well. Valencia orange harvest continues with light volumes. Citrus groves were skirted, hedgerowed, and irrigated. Naval orange fruit thinning was ongoing. Pushed-out citrus groves were being prepared for planting. Almond and pistachio harvest is ongoing. Orchard floors were prepared for harvest. Some walnuts are being harvested in Tulare County. Brassica and lettuce continues to be harvested over in Monterey. Cucumbers, peppers, and tomatoes were still being harvested in Tulare County. Here in the Sacramento Valley, processing tomatoes continue to be harvested. As you may realize, with no rain, rangeland and non-irrigated pasture is in poor condition throughout California. Cattle continue to be provided supplemental feed to compensate for the deficient nutritional value of rangeland forage. Sheep are grazing on fallowed fields. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator such as iTunes. Almond farmers are increasingly using harvesting machines with technology designed to cut down on dust. The California Farm Bureau Federation recently talked with almond grower Jonathan Cloward. He demonstrates how one such harvester works in one of his Ripon orchards. The way the harvester works is you have the pickup belt that's up front. So anything that's in a windrow uh, that's down here, that pickup belt is going to be picking those almonds up and dumping them onto the cleaning chain. This cleaning chain is going to take all uh, as many as much of the dirt and leaves that are crumpled up and dry and try to get those to sift out the bottom of the machine before it even hits this big blower. Uh, the blower here is what's going to try to separate again as much as possible you know some of the leaves any holes from the almonds that have been cracked off uh, again more dirt and, and dust and all those things is going to try to draw that out of the machine um, out the blower housing before the almonds get back into the wedge cart all of your dust that's going to come from the machine is when that blower um, you know blows everything out the side of the machine so what exact is done is uh, there's a water tank in this machine um, and so it will shoot water into this blower housing here to try to capture as much dirt and dust as possible um, this brush reel will turn that'll help keep all the dust and dirt and mud basically from getting all clumped up 
um, and it'll push it out the back end and that's basically what uh, they want the dust and the dirt to turn into. Um, that way it keeps it out of the air and just puts it right back onto the ground. And for almond growers throughout California, they say the crop will be better than they once feared due to concerns about that cold snap at bloom time. Overall, almond production has been estimated to be up this year about 8%. We are starting to get some preliminary reports on agricultural losses from Florence and its aftermath. North Carolina just reporting combined losses of row crops, green industry commodities, vegetable and horticultural crops, and forestry losses totaling $1.1 billion, most of that coming in the row crop area. However, Assistant North Carolina Commissioner of Agriculture Joe Reardon told us this is just a first painful stab at coming up with loss estimates. So we're going to be looking at these numbers. We want to make sure we get it right. Peanut production is important to North Carolina. So is cotton. So is tobacco. So is sweet potatoes. Our grapes to make our wine come out of those areas. And so really, all these commodities have been infected. And so we're going to really look closely at these numbers. And that's just in the, the produce side of the world, if you will. The animal side as well has been greatly affected. And on that score, North Carolina's Ag Department reporting Florence took out over 4 million poultry and about 5,500 hogs. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Rice grower Greg Van Dyke of VA Farms in Pleasant Grove is busy harvesting rice right now, but there is one concern he has, and it has to do with a change in the weather. Well, it is an absolutely gorgeous day without a cloud in the sky, and it looks like uh, fall should be a normal timing. So the only thing we really worry about now is the if the rains start coming early, because once we dry the rice down or ripen the rice ready for harvest, rehydration can really mess with the quality of it. So as long as we have our nice, predictable, wonderful weather going into fall, we should have a month or so to be able to get the crop off. And like I said, every indication so far is really good quality and decent yields. So we never like to uh, try and estimate yields at this point, but quality looks good and we'll know when the last truck goes across the scale in terms of yield. And Van Dyke may not have much to worry about, although AccuWeather is predicting a chance of showers October 3rd and 4th. But for most of October, the forecast is for sunny skies. And what would an episode of MacGyver, either the original or the reboot, be without Mac getting out of some dilemma through use of his trusty Swiss army knife? Might need that. Cool. Now, some have referred to unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, as the Swiss Army Knife of Agriculture. Some experts in UAV technology say the case can be made for this title now and in the future, such as Virginia Cooperative Extension's Dan Swafford. I firmly believe you can take a drone and use it for many different things on the farm in one day. Although others, like Oregon State University Extension's Victor Viegas, says there are limitations currently on the potential of drones. Some technological, but mainly legislatively and rule-wise from FAA and other federal and state regulations. I'm Rod Bain. And a look at UAVs as a multi-purpose tool for ag, now and beyond, is the subject of this edition of Agriculture USA. 
What are the capabilities of unmanned aerial vehicles as an everyday tool on the farm and ranch? Someone with a decade of experience in drones, Virginia Cooperative Extension's Dan Swafford, believes the multi-purpose functions of this technology is already on display. There has been much focus in recent years on UAVs as a tool on the crop side of agriculture. You can go over there and check for insects, blight, disease, check and see what part of the field is suffering, what needs more water. Although Swafford's primary expertise with drones comes from the perspective of raising livestock. As a child, I grew up on a farm in Missouri, and we had to go out and check on the cows and the sheep and the water. Now you've got a pool that can do that for you. Regardless of what an ag producer is raising, the enthusiasm about unmanned aerial vehicles is not just what they can do now, but the growing technological potential going forward. Yet as someone who drones on about drones for a living, Oregon State University Extension's Victor Viegas points out that excitement is tempered somewhat by current limitations, both technological and regulatory. On the regulation side of things, basically the FAA limits flights to within visual line of sight. You have to be able to sit with your own eyes. You can't use any binoculars or some type of radar. Also, the FAA considers any type of use of a drone in the furtherance of business as commercial, whether you're making money off of it or not. You're using it to scout your field to see how corn's growing. That's a commercial use, so they're requiring you to have a Part 107 certificate. However, there is some progress in limiting these limitations. In terms of the limited power source of UAV gas and electric motors, and in turn flight times, another expert in uh, technology, Tim the Toolman Taylor, offers the obvious answer. What do we need? more power. There's research being done kind of do a hybrid type of a multi-rotor electrical motor and they have a gas engine that is working a generator to generate the electricity to maintain the electricity in flight. So they're looking at flights of over an hour and they're shooting for something like three hours. Obviously the longer you can keep a drone up in the air the better it has to fly several acreage. Although the FAA is allowing waivers to researchers to conduct and study beyond visual line-of-sight flight. Once that becomes available at a larger scale, then obviously we'll be able to fly these aircraft over a lot larger farms, and it will definitely be more effective that way. And Viegas adds that regarding FAA-required operator certificates for farmers to scout their crops with drones... I don't see that going away. However, the test that you take to do that might be getting a little bit easier, so at least it's starting to open up and regulations are loosening up a little bit. Meanwhile, research into just how far drones can go as a multi-purpose ag tool is promising and exciting. Dan Swafford says, for instance... In China and Japan, they use drones to spray for pests. We are beginning to get into that into the United States. There is also study of the capabilities of drones in spot planting crops. Where you could have a spreader mounted below the drone would fly low enough that you could sow seeds in areas where you couldn't get to, maybe it'd be too wet or something if you didn't want to mar up the field for that small spot. Swafford's own research involves location and health evaluation of livestock via ear tags and drones. You could see the advantage of that where you got a herd or a flock out there that you could fly over. It would transmit up to the drone those key points of identification. The producer could set back and say, oh, number 286, temperature's a little bit high. We might want to walk out and take a look at her. Or maybe we want to drop down the drone and get a closer look. Conservation, forestry, and water resources are also areas of study where unmanned aerial vehicles have, and can, assist producers in greater efficiency, productivity, and with its many uses, versatility. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
According to the California Fresh Fig Growers Association, the 2018 California Fresh Fig season is well underway and it'll continue through mid-December. This year's crop is as sweet as ever with lots of color, shapes, and sizes to enjoy. In California, there are six primary varieties of figs. The Black Mission that has a purple and black skin, the Calmerna with a pale yellow skin with a buttery and nutty flavor, the Cadota, creamy amber skin with a light flavor, the Brown Turkey, light purple to black skin with a robust flavor, the Sierra, which has a light colored skin with a fresh, sweet flavor, and Tiger, which is a light yellow color with unique dark green stripes, as well as a bright red-purple interior fruit with fruity raspberry and citrus flavor. California is the sole producer of figs in the United States. Why? It's that Mediterranean climate we have. Figs are also grown in the countries of Turkey, Spain, Greece, Egypt, Iran, Syria, Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco. And welcome to the first ever Direct Agricultural Marketing Summit. Ken Keck with USDA's Marketing Service, one of the hosts of the summit, which took place in Arlington, Virginia, a few days ago, and which brought in farmers and farmers market managers, state extension experts, many others. We were expecting 200 folks. We got close to 400 here. Uh, from all over the country, Arthur Neal's one of the organizers of the summit. Its purpose... Bring people together to introduce them to new technology that could help their businesses, best practices, and create an environment for them to network. We want them to leave here reinvigorated with great ideas, with new ties to people that can help them be more successful in carrying out their uh, direct farm-to-consumer activities. Activities which at last count amounted to almost $9 billion, and we say last count because it appears farmers' market numbers and sales are growing, contributing to local economies, but in reality... There's no up-to-date, real-time data on what this sector looks like. So there's definitely a data gap, and Neil says... Not having the data affects our ability and your ability to tell people who want to finance markets, including members of Congress, the success that the markets are having. Among the reasons for this data gap? Some farmers don't want to share what they're making at a market. Well, yes, we have a lot of farmers that are not going to want to give up that information. Dr. Janine Parker with North Carolina A&T University Extension told the summit many farmers don't want to tell what they're making. Because then they can be tagged. Their competition can be tagged. Uh, some don't always believe the information would be kept anonymous, which it would be. But also, the summit brought up another way that some, we say some farmers, selling at farmers markets are rather tight-lipped with consumers. Now, many producers go out of their way to answer questions or tell us all about the products. For example, this uh, grower of tomatoes. The Romans have less liquid, so they're a meatier tomato, so they're real good for cooking. Yellow tomatoes. That farmer doing a great job, and she sells more products that way. On the other hand... Some vendors that I've watched, they don't even talk to their customers. They just sell the product. Arthur Neal said that for some farmers, talking to customers is not in their comfort zone. That's a skill set that some vendors have, but not all vendors, and training can take place in that space to help them be more comfortable doing so. Neil says it has been proven over and over again a farmer can make more sales, more money. If someone takes the time to educate a buyer why they should really invest in their product. In Arlington, Virginia, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. California has received $22 million from the U.S. Department of Agriculture's 2018 Specialty Crop Block Grant Program. It's the most of any state in the country. More than $72 million was awarded nationwide. 
This program will provide grants to the California Department of Food and Agriculture to fund projects that enhance the competitiveness of specialty crops defined as fruits, vegetables, tree nuts, dried fruits, horticulture, and nursery crops, including floriculture. CDFA will fund 83 projects awarding grants ranging from $25,000 to $300,000 for nonprofit and for-profit organizations, governmental entities, as well as colleges and universities. World Ag Outlook Board Chair Seth Meyer says although there were no big changes made to the overall outlook for beef, pork, broiler, or turkey production. But yet underlying here is an increase, a pretty good size increase year to year, about 2.68 billion pounds of additional production. It's a little, that's about two and a half percent increase year over year in, in meat supplies. So that's a pretty good sized increase in meat. He says this is resulting in what he describes as a competition between meats. So far, I think we've seen pretty good demand for beef. Beef demand is held in there pretty well. He says despite increases in beef production, demand for beef will keep prices solid. Now, on the other side of that is that we've seen some near-term weakness in hog prices, and we dropped the 2018 hog price by $1.13 a hundredweight. USDA's 2018 estimate for hog prices is 43.13 per hundredweight compared to steers at 115.71 per hundredweight. Both meats have been doing well overseas too. We've got year-over-year increases in meat trade. We raised them further yet this month. For beef, it's been pretty strong demand from Asia. So not only good demand here, good solid demand here in the U.S., but good demand in Asia. Lower prices have been helping pork sales. Having some good sales to Korea, having some good sales to Mexico. So we're price competitive into Mexico where we can sell fresh product where maybe some others cannot. So prices keeping us competitive in world markets for pork. While demand for beef and pork remains strong, that is not the same story for meat in another category. Turkey's really suffered in terms of weak demand. He says Turkey has not been able to regain some of its export markets and is facing PR challenges at home. Lean isn't necessarily in anymore. We talk about fats back, and so people don't necessarily looking for things like turkey pastrami at the moment or or some things like this. So, you know, as as you look around, Turkey struggled. Which means Turkey producers are working to reassess the situation. You know, there are some innovations in other meats, including some, you know, innovations in products and chickens and things like this. And so the Turkey guys are trying to assess where that market is at. What does our export market look like? What does our domestic market look like? USDA forecasts turkeys at 593 per billion pounds in 2018, down one cent from last month. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington. Washington, D.C. According to the California Farm Bureau Federation, faced with lower prices for organic milk, dairy farmers and processors are looking for ways to manage an oversupply. Organic milk sales have cooled at the same time as higher supplies reach market. Some farmers have lost contracts to sell their organic milk and they've left the business. Others say they plan to reduce their dairy herds as well as diversifying into other crops or products. Foresters hope to salvage some of the timber scorched by California's wildfires. They say a streamlined review process for timber harvests would help. Bills sent to the governor would increase the pace of forest management. Foresters and their representatives say it's important to simplify the removal of burned trees and to manage forests to help prevent future fires, noting that proper management would be less costly than constantly fighting wildfires. Yes, the Federal Reserve has made the anticipated move. With a quarter point increase in short-term interest rates. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell making that announcement Wednesday. The reason given? Keep the economy strong, healthy, and moving forward. 
But for the farm economy, rate hikes in the past have tended to have the opposite effect. Agriculture Department Chief Economist Rob Johansson told us first, if the past is any indication, rate hikes tend to cause the dollar to gain strength. And that has the effect of making it more difficult for our producers to sell our products overseas. We become a little bit less competitive on the global scene. Emphasis on a little bit. Also with higher interest rates. Land and capital equipment would probably go down in value a little bit. As the interest rates go up, it becomes a little bit more difficult to buy those, and therefore demand for those assets will fall. Also, when interest rates rise, sometimes farm commodity prices drop a little bit. And, of course, Johansson says it's almost certain that farmers will be paying more to borrow money. USDA estimates this year it'll be 17% more. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. More and more people, farmers and gardeners, are discovering the benefits of cover cropping. That's putting in a crop that basically feeds the soil during a dormant season. It could be a cool season cover crop. It could be a warm season cover crop. But the benefits to cover cropping are enormous, both at the home and on the farm. We're talking to the cover crop expert out at Peaceful Valley Farm Supply, a Northern California-based catalog company for organic farmers and gardeners, Sarah Griffin Bubakar. And Sarah, what are some of the benefits of cover cropping that maybe gardeners or farmers don't know about? Well, there's a lot of benefits. Um, it depends on why you want a cover crop. So there's lots of different reasons to use one. Um, they can obviously fix nitrogen. That'd probably be the number one benefit. It brings um, atmospheric nitrogen and puts it right in the soil, right where your plants can use it. Um, it also adds organic matter. So when you're amending your garden, the two only two expensive amendments are nitrogen, fertilizer, and organic matter like compost. So this uh, cover crop will do both of those. It also can suppress weeds over the winter and improve soil tilth and increase biology in the soil. Um, it can uh, reduce erosion. It can help with certain pest problems because it'll harbor beneficial insects. Uh, it can even provide winter feed for animals. Helps with crop rotation, which is very important, and it just it's more of a natural crop rotation. And it can increase water infiltration in the soil. Let's talk about that last point because uh, that's important for gardeners and farmers who, who want to cut down the amount of irrigation they have to do. And that has to do with the deep-rooted nature of cover cropping, allowing the water to penetrate even deeper into the soil profile. Well, yeah, exactly. It will. It can be, especially some cover crops have very large roots like daikon radish. So you can plant daikon radish and as it grows, it busts through some hard uh, soils that would otherwise be hard to penetrate and allow the water to stay, go down deeper into the soil profile. While at the same time, it, all of those roots and all of that organic matter is like a sponge holding on to water. So if you have a healthy cover cropping system, then, yeah, over time, you would need to irrigate less and less. And as you mentioned, that by having a cover crop, you're providing, if you will, a good bug hotel for beneficial insects who may be inspired to spend the winter on your property. Absolutely. Cover crop doesn't necessarily have to mean a crop you put in between, you know, your succession planting. It can also be a hedgerow, so something along the, the border lines of your, of your garden area or your farming area that would work as a protective area for these beneficial insects. So it can provide uh, pollen for the pollinizing. A lot of our beneficial insects are pollinators when they're adults and they're voracious bug eaters as larvae. 
And so it'll pr- provide habitat for them so that if you do have a pest problem in your garden, those beneficial insects are just lying in wait, waiting to gobble them up. There's a lot of confusion among gardeners and farmers about when you take out a cover crop or what do you do to a cover crop in spring when it's time to plant. Do you take it out? Do you just mow it down? What do you do with a cover crop? And at what point should you be cutting down a cover crop? Right. Well, that's a really good question. So there's a couple of different schools of thought on that. There's um, if you're a tiller, if you till, then there's one way to do it. And then there's if you're a no-till person. And no-till is, is pretty hip right now um, because of the, you know, maintaining the mycorrhizae in the soil. And so if you till, then you bust up all that mycorrhizae and it's hard for it to really get established mycorrhizae being the beneficial fungus in the soil. So the no-till method is pretty popular. Um, but the key thing to remember, whether you're tilling or not tilling, is that you don't want to cut the cover crop and just let it lay. Because if you let it lay, then all of that nitrogen that's in the plant, it's been sequestering. It's been grabbing from the atmosphere and putting it into the plant. It's all just going to go back into the atmosphere. And it can happen within minutes. Within an hour, most of that nitrogen's gone. So the key thing is that once you cut, you have to cover it, whether you cover it by tilling it into the soil or whether if you're doing a no-till, then you're going to cover it with another layer of something. So finished compost or something else. So just to keep that, that nitrogen in the soil rather than going back into the atmosphere. So the key is to cut the cover crop when it's about half in bloom, because if you allow the cover crop to go to seed, Then you've got weed problems and not to mention a lot of that nitrogen that you've been keeping from taking from the atmosphere is now going into seed production. So all that energy, rather than going back into the soil as now fertilizer or green manure, is then going into seed production. So you don't want your cover crop to go to seed. So the key is to cut it when it's about half in bloom. So you just start to notice the blooms, about half the crop is in bloom, then you're going to cut it and immediately cover it, whether you're covering it by tilling it in or covering it with a mulch. Then you're going to wait at least three weeks if you're tilling, perhaps even longer, depending on how thick your mat is. Um, If you're doing a no-till, you're going to wait at least three weeks in planting to give the green manure a chance to break down. If you don't do that, it actually gets quite hot in the soil, and you can burn your seedlings or your seeds, and uh, nothing will grow for about three weeks until that's able to break down. It could be sooner, could be longer, depending on how active the soil biology is at the time. For both the small-scale gardener and the large-scale farmer, what are some alternatives for mulching that cut cover crop if you're practicing no-till? I mean, you can use straw, you can use alfalfa hay, you can use a finished compost, anything to cover up that that layer of the green cover crop. You just really don't want it to go limp and have all the water come out of it because with the water will go the nitrogen. Let's talk about some various cover crops. And I imagine uh, it depends on what you're growing and uh, where you are and uh, what sort of soil you have. But among the, the fall-sown cover crops, what are the most popular? Well, we have... Um we have formulated here at Peaceful Valley, we formulated a couple of mixes that are really popular. Um, they are, we call them soil builder mixes because they will build your soil if you use them every year. And the soil builder mixes have a mix of grasses and legumes. 
So the legumes are those nitrogen fixers. So that's the ones that we've mainly been talking about as fixing nitrogen. But grasses also have a lot of benefits, mainly being just a lot of biomass that they they grow quickly and put a lot of organic matter into the soil. Soil builder mixes have vetch and bell beans, which are a kind of fava beans. So they they grow really well in the cold weather. Um, and the vetch is like a vine, and it climbs up the bell beans, and it climbs up. There's also white oats and peas in there, and the they, peas and the vetch use the oats and the bell beans as scaffolding to climb up. So it'll be quite the tangled mess, ideally. Um, it'll be full of beneficial insects, ideally. And, um, and then when you chop it down, you want to do that before it's fully blooming. And I imagine when you chop it down, you want to do it in segments of no more than 6 to 12 inches before you take it to the ground. Right. Well, hopefully you're, by the spring, your cover crop is quite lush and prolific. And so you want to chop it up as much as possible because the more it's chopped up into little pieces, uh, the quicker it breaks down. And so you will chop it up and then either till it in or cover it up. So maybe uh, mowing it after you've chopped it up would help. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Key is to really cover it up. This mix that you're talking about, your premium uh, soil builder mix, uh, can get rather high, can't it? About what, four to six feet? It can, yeah. So what I use is I use a weed whacker when I go to, to chop it down. And I'll just chop, like you said, the top six inches, then do another layer, then do another layer um, until it gets down to the ground. And what is the application rate for the garden? What is the application rate for a farm? Let's see, you're going to do three to five pounds for a thousand square feet for the soil builder mix. Keeping in mind that because it is a lot of different sized seeds, seed spreaders can be a little bit challenging because you've got the smaller vetch seeds and the larger um, bell beans and, and that. So it will be a little bit harder to spread. Also, it's not pre-inoculated. And so if you add it, if you add the inoculant, it can get a little bit sticky. So I usually just spread it by hand. Um, now, if you're a farmer, you it's 70 to 120 pounds per acre, depending on how rich your soil is. Obviously, if your soil is, is quite poor, you're going to go the higher application rate. In that case, using a more professional grade seed spreader would be best, or even a seed driller. If you're drilling the seed then it would be, you could go the lower application rate as well because you'd have more germination. What depth is ideal for planting the seed? Well, because it, it's tough, like I said, because it's so many different sized seeds, you don't want to go too deep. So I would only go about a quarter inch deep because of the vetch mainly as the smallest seeds and the oats as well. So you don't want to go too deep. I'd say a quarter inch to a half inch deep at the most. A lot of people just spread it over the top and that works too. Does it need irrigation after planting or can you just wait for the fall rains to begin? It really depends. Um, I, a big mistake what I see a lot of people do um, while they, oh, I just didn't have success with my cover crop. Well, usually it has to do with irrigation because you do, it is a seed that needs to, all like all seeds, it needs to be completely moist the whole time. And so if it's allowed to dry out, then the seed will just die. And so I like to time it 
when right when the fall rains have started, but the soil is still warm. If the soil is too cold when you plant it, then the seeds won't germinate or they'll take a really long time to germinate. So you you have to time it right. Sometimes Mother Nature doesn't cooperate with you with the timing and the fall rains will come later or they'll come too early when you're, you're, the rest of your crop is still in. You can irrigate to get the timing right. You have to keep the soil completely moist while it's germinating. Once it's germinated, you can let it dry out in between, especially because it'll be cooler and so you don't need to water as often. But you still need to pay attention to dry spells. And if it is, if we do have a dry spell, which oftentimes we do in January in particular, is a pretty dry month most most often. So, you know, giving it a good drench once a week or so, even when it's cold, you don't really need much more than that. Well, that will really help the, the cover crop thrive and you'll get the most out of it. So I guess ideal planting time for this, really, it depends on the weather, but basically uh, sometime between Labor Day and Halloween. Yeah, I'd say that's, that's pretty safe. I mean, you don't want to get your crops, your summer crops out too soon because you want to really, you know, maximize how much you get out of them. But then there, there comes to be a point where, you know, those tomatoes, while you may, may still have some green tomatoes on the plant, if the tomato is really suffering and, and not looking very healthy, you got to pull it out sooner rather than later because otherwise you're just inviting pest problems. Peaceful Valley has a, a wide array of cover crops and cover crop mixes, and you can check out what they have online at groworganic.com. It's all about cover cropping. Sarah Griffin Bubakar is the product development manager at Peaceful Valley Farm Supply. Sarah, good talking with you and happy cover cropping. Thanks. You too, Fred. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.